Father, we love you, Lord, we need you, and God, we thank you that with you all things are possible. God, thank you that we're your children. Thank you that we have a place in your house. Lord, I thank you for MBT. And here we are, we're, the, we're the, like Ephesians 2. This, we're the lively stones that build the habitation of the Spirit. And, and Lord, what's true of us individually is true of us corporately. We are the place where you dwell. And, and, and so Lord, we want you to be honored with our life. And that means we need, to, we need to see and submit to, we need to know and yield to your word. So God, we pray that you'd open our understanding, give us the ability to behold the wonderful things that are in your word. And we don't wanna be guilty of seeing and knowing them in, in just an intellectual exercise, Lord. We wanna, we wanna hear from you. We want you to speak to our hearts. We want you to have your way with our lives. And so God, we're trusting that this morning you'll just use this to conform us that much more to the mind and the image of Christ. God, take the weakness of my flesh and my stumbling lips, and God, would you just discount that? But Lord, through your word and through your spirit, have your way with us. God, thank you for the, the givers of MBT through the, uh, just the weirdest time in my lifetime. Lord, thank you for faithful stewards who give and, and, and Lord, give as owners of the mission with you. Lord, they give in obedience, but they give sacrificially, and, and Lord, the work of the ministry keeps moving forward, and so God, would you bless them as, as, they, as they participate as stewards? Lord, would you bless every ministry head and every team that has a responsibility to execute those funds? Lord, I thank you for the ministry that you are funding around the world from a little church in, in the middle of our city, in the heart of Kansas City, Lord, I thank you for disciples multiplying around the world. I thank you for the orphans and the widows that are supported and the gospel of Jesus Christ that thrives in connection uh, with, with those, those, those works of charity, those acts of charity. Lord, I thank you for the multiplying of churches. God, it's, it's just wonderful. Thank you for the way that you're, you're, you're training up people through the Bible school and all of that's made possible through the giving here at, at MBT, and, and we're just grateful uh, that we can participate together in the work. God be glorified in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're still not passing a plate, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that, but uh, again, uh, this church has been very faithful in her giving. You wanna be a part of, of stewarding, you wanna be a part of owning the ministry and, and so you know, we've got the, the tactical giving at the back of the auditorium, there are drop boxes on the west side of the building, but also you can go to the website mbtkc.org and through MyMBT uh, you, can, you can participate uh, with us in worship and stewardship and giving. Okay, Genesis chapter three, we're looking at the temptation in the garden and if we're gonna look at the temptation, we can't lose sight of the mission that God gave to Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis chapter one, verse 28. What's the, what's the commission? They are to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And so there it is. They are to replenish the earth with sons of God. We looked at that, but the problem is before they have children, before the replenishing starts, they sin. Paul described it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses one through four. He talks about the serpent beguiling Eve 
as the serpent, his fear for the church is that they would be beguiled away from what the word of God says. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind should be corrupted for the simplicity that is in Christ. Uh, There are people who preach other words, right? They They preach a replacement gospel. They preach something that's not in the book. And, um, and we gotta beware. Satan comes to Eve with another message and because she didn't know, because she wasn't submitted to the word of God, she got messed up. And uh, you and I are, we're still dealing with that decision today, aren't we? See, now their children cannot be born with a sinless nature. You remember we closed out Genesis chapter two. The man and the woman were both naked, they're They're living in, they're clothed with the light of God. Uh, They're both naked, they're not ashamed. They don't have the knowledge of good and evil. They are sinless in nature. What we're gonna see in Genesis chapter three, he's got a device that he deploys and it's one of deception. It's a device of deception, that's your next two blanks. Paul describes it in 1 Timothy chapter two. In verses 12 through 14, he says, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And again, he's talking about how pastoral authority works in the church, uh, but he gives the example of Eve. Adam wasn't deceived. He ate that fruit knowing exactly what it was and what it would produce. Eve, though, through the subtlety of Satan, she was deceived. What we're gonna see is she makes an emotional decision uh, that has catastrophic implications. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter three and verse one. The Bible says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. There's that word again, subtle. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So there's already a distinction in verse one between the serpent and everything else that God has made. He is more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So let's look at the serpent. Notice the Bible calls this creature the serpent, not a serpent. He's not one of the regular snakes. Uh, He is the serpent, not a serpent. And uh, this should draw your attention to the serpent of Job 41, of, of Isaiah 27, the serpent of Revelation chapter 12. In Job 41, the serpent is called, he's described as Leviathan. Leviathan, you look at the description of Leviathan and, and he's a dragon, okay? His kneesings produce light, the Bible says. He is a dragon. Well, in Leviticus chapter 11, we find out that reptiles are declared unclean by God. Uh, They're not on the menu for God's people, so there's something unclean spiritually about a reptile or about uh, a serpent or a dragon. Check out Isaiah 27 and verse one. It says, in the day, in that day, the Lord, with his sore and great strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, that day in your Bible, that's always a pointer to the coming day of the Lord. There is a day coming when Christ will rule and reign, and part of what sets up his rule and reign is a piercing of Leviathan, uh, the serpent. The Lord, with a, with a great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. 
He will punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. Do you get that Leviathan is a snake? Isaiah makes sure that you don't miss that Leviathan is the serpent. The dragon is the serpent. Well, who is the dragon? Well, check out Revelation chapter 12 and verse nine. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, and in case you hadn't picked it up in your Bible who the identity of Leviathan, the dragon, the serpent is, uh, John just makes sure that all of us slow people can't miss it. Revelation chapter 12 verse nine, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. It wasn't just Eve, right? He's in the business of deceiving everyone. He was cast down into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So notice, here is the serpent and he's among the beasts of the field which the Lord had created. He's more subtle than all of them. So, so when God created the animal kingdom, it is no surprise and it's no wonder that we find that Satan is of higher order and magnitude, right? He is of more cunning, more, more subtlety. And so the Bible is clear to point this out. He's among, though, the beasts of the field. We see in our Bible that the serpent does not begin to crawl around on his belly until verse 14. Now, this is probably the most important thing. What does Eve see when she sees the serpent? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. This serpent, this dragon, Leviathan, Satan, fall, Lucifer fallen, uh, he can transform himself into an angel of light. So Eve sees a being of light. She sees someone like the voice of the Lord. She sees someone like the creator himself, like the Lord Jesus Christ as he's revealed throughout history. She sees an angel of light, a being of light, and that, dis that disguises his true identity. Have you ever met somebody that you think, this is just the most wonderful person in the world, and then you find out that was just a disguise because they are the most evil scumbag you've ever met? Has that ever happened to you? Probably in junior high. <laughs> somebody wanted to be your best friend and they were a backstabber. Okay, so there it is. That's Satan, angel of light, and he means only death and destruction. So this serpent, he looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he's, he, he comes off like one of the good guys. He's on the good team. But God's perspective in the Bible makes it clear that he's really a beast, a serpent, a dragon, a roaring lion. But he's more subtle than any other beast in the field, verse one says. Now we already saw in chapter one, he's also connected to the cattle and the beasts of the field. You can get those notes uh, in our sermon finder on the website as an anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. We know he had a cherub face. He, had, he has four faces, but he has a cherub face, which is an ox face, right? A cow face. That's one of the faces of the cherubim. And so we talked about how that is manifest in pagan worship. You've got winged bulls. Uh, you've got Baal worship, golden calves, and the like. Uh, did I give you the cross-references for that? Um, we looked at Ezekiel 10, Revelation 4. I mean, you can go back in the sermon finder and, and look, at, look at day six in our series. God reveals him also as a roaring lion. He uses fear to paralyze, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse eight. 
Uh, and the reason he, he wants to look like a lion is because he's a counterfeiter. Everything that God is, Satan wants to counterfeit. He wants to reproduce. Christ, when he comes to rule and reign, he doesn't come as the lamb of God that takes away, right, the sin of the world. He comes as the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, okay? So he's not mute and dumb before his slayers in the second coming. Uh, he is the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, and so Satan, uh, he, he tries to pull the same thing. He is a counterfeiter, and we'll, we'll actually look at that more closely as we, as we see the deception through Genesis. So to man he appears as an angel of light, right? That's the function of Antichrist. Uh, the, the world will fall for this demonic imposter, and they will claim he's the Messiah. Why, he is, uh, he is transforming himself as an angel of light, and so he produces false religion. But here is the reality for mankind. This is the fact, Satan is real. There is an actual devil, and he means your destruction. Now, the question on the floor here in Genesis chapter three is he's more subtle than any beast of the field. Is he more subtle than Eve? Yes or no? Absolutely. Is he smarter than Eve? Does he know more than Eve? Does he understand more than Eve understands? Absolutely. Does the devil, here's the really big question. Does the devil, is he more subtle than you? Is he smarter than you? Does he know more than you? Do you think that if it was a battle of wits between you and the, I mean, you know, Mike Kinnicutt went down to Georgia, okay? (laughs) So did the devil. The devil went down to Georgia. Mike Kinnicutt's probably the smartest guy in our church, real brilliant guy, Um, very intelligent. Mike Mike Kinnicutt's gonna mix it up with Lucifer. Who do you think's gonna win in that battle of wits? Mike doesn't stand a chance. And you, you go tell me some hillbilly with a fiddle? Show d- the devil how it was done? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Does the devil know more than, absolutely. Is he more subtle? He, he even knows the Bible better than you do. Watch the method of attack, okay? Uh, it's when we, th- I mean, it's when we think we know something, right? We get full of ourselves. Ah, you know, we got this all figured out. That's when we get tripped up. Watch the method of attack. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Uh, Opening question sets up destruction. Verse two, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Okay, so the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Satan's goal is to discredit the word of God. That's how he subtly attacks the woman. He attacks her based on what she thinks she knows, and he's going to discredit the word of God so as to invite her rebellion. See, if he can discredit God's word, then Eve doesn't have to take the word seriously, 
And the sad reality, I mean, if you want to talk about the Word of God in Genesis chapter 3, here's the whole enchilada. What is the Word of God in Genesis chapter 3? Well, we find it in Genesis 1, 28, where God says to them, Adam and Eve, God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree. How many trees? Every tree. We'll see the caveat here in a second. In the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed and to you it shall be for meat. Okay, so that's the first half of God's word. Here's the second half, Genesis chapter two, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded not them, but the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. So here's the one restriction that's given to Adam. Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And that, brothers and sisters, is all of the word of God to man at this point in human history. It would have taken Adam all of two minutes to memorize the whole thing. Eve could have memorized the whole of God's word in two minutes, probably faster. They probably, could, they probably had photographic memories. They could have heard it and had the word of God down. That's it, that's the whole enchilada, and it's not hard to understand, it's not hard to master. Now, in terms of the second half, it looks like Adam has a responsibility to transmit the word of God to the rest of humanity, which is one person at this point. Uh, So the Old Testament was given to both, everything's on the menu, be fruitful, multiply, replenish, subdue, have dominion. Uh, New Testament, one caveat, that was given to Adam. Now here's the problem, is Eve doesn't take God at his word. Anytime we don't take God at his word, when we don't submit to what the word of God says, that's when we get in trouble. David said it this way in Psalm 119, verse 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart. Why why do I need to know the word of God? Why do I need to make it mine? That I might not sin against thee. It's when we don't know, it's when we're not submitted to the word of God, that's when we get out of step with God, amen? So here's the attack on God's word. The very first question in your Bible is an attack. The first, Satan's first recorded words are a question to Eve so as to induce doubt about what God says. Yea, hath God said. What, look at what he says, yea, hath God said. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That's exactly the opposite of what God said. <laughs> He's discrediting the word of God. So this is an attack, you know, the, the, look at the first phrase there, yea hath God said. So first he's attacking authorship. Hath God said? Do you really have the word of God? And then he attempts to get her to doubt the accuracy of God's word. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden, do you see that? Uh, do you really know what God said and, and then, <laughs> I mean is God really talking, is it really God that said, and then do you really know what he said? He's, he's, he's causing doubt as to the accuracy of God's word. We see that same attack in seminaries and in pulpits today. The way it's set up, right, in the typical seminary and the typical pulpit is nobody but the guy with the most advanced degrees can guess at what God actually said. Uh, Nobody can point to the certainty of the words of truth and say, thus saith the Lord. Can I just tell you, God hath said. 
thus saith the Lord. If it's in this book, God said it, okay? I know that with my whole heart. I don't have to guess, I don't have to wonder. What the book says settles it. And so the typical seminary, the typical pastor, uh, they are not trusting in the authority of scripture, but they're trusting in the ability of the minister to discern what is and is not the word of God. Here it is in a nutshell, okay? Of, uh, of all the manuscripts that we have from church history, all, of the, all, the, all the manuscripts, they basically break up into two camps. The overwhelming majority of manuscripts form what's known as the Textus Receptus. And it's from that body that the King James Bible comes from, okay? The overwhelming majority of manuscripts that we have all agree as to content. They all agree as to what God says. Now the other less than 5%, okay, they disagree, right? They, they, they give witness to other, uh, other renditions, okay? So they disagree in terms of their witness with the Textus Receptus, but also with one another. Uh, so for the sake of this conversation, we're gonna call that smaller group of manuscripts the Textus Rejectus, because historically, the church has rejected them as being the preserved words of God. So, so, so the King James Bible, that's what we use here at MBT, the reason that we use it is it's the only English translation, and that includes the new King James, that's solely from the family of the received text. This is what the church has bled and died using and preserving and passing down from generation to generation. No other English translation comes solely from the camp of the received text. Does that make sense? Now, if I'm in the other camp and I'm using manuscripts, modern English translations that come from this group of witnesses that disagree with the received text but also with one another, what that does is engender uncertainty. Well, what did God say? Where is the certainty of the words of truth? And you point at a theological library and you say, it's there, it's in there. But I can't point to a book if I'm, I'm in that camp and say, thus saith the Lord. Does this make sense? This is why we use a King James Bible, because we find within it the certainty of the words of truth. God said it, that settles it, now we can just to get to work, we can just get to work understanding it, submitting to it, and implementing it. It's like the choir. If Eric's trying to run the choir and every choir member has their own songbook, how's the worship gonna sound? It's gonna sound a little catastrophic. There's gonna be a cacophony of different sounds, isn't there? So we gotta all be, if we're all singing from the same songbook, that's how we're gonna get to um, you know, unity and harmony the quickest. And so at MBT, we have a final authority. It's not me, it's not even what I think about the Bible, it's the Bible itself. What does God say? What does the book say? Um, I'd much rather submit to the authority of a book than to the changing opinions and whims of men. So you'll never hear me in this pulpit say, you know, this isn't a good translation here in Genesis chapter three. The ESV renders it better over here uh, because it says, you know, just fill in the blank. Now, what's the final authority? Is it the word of God? Well, if I'm, if I'm yes, that's true. <laughs> the word of God is the final authority. But if I am saying that this is not a good translation here in Genesis chapter three, verse seven, I like the ESV better, I think it does a better job, 
rendering the truth of God's word in our language. Now the final authority isn't the Bible itself, it's my opinion on what the translations say. Does that make sense? So it's no longer the word of God, it's whoever's got the most letters behind their name, whoever's got the most degrees, the most study, that dude, his opinions become the final authority. Now we're in big trouble. Because the opinions of men, they're mushy, they're squishy, they're flexible, they are not consistent. Man, God the same yesterday, today, and forever. What the book says settles it, let's just get to work learning it and submitting to it. A lot of freedom uh, when we do that. See, what Satan is doing is he's trying to get Eve to doubt the certainty of the words of truth. This is a typical courtroom strategy. The issue for the defense is never proof, but to introduce reasonable doubt. Because if I can get, you know, Satan's saying, if I can get her to doubt the word, if I can get God's people to doubt the word, well then they won't trust it, and then they won't submit to it. So it's an attempt to doubt the accuracy of God's word. Next, he, he tries to get her to doubt the acceptability of God's word. Is it really fair for God to prohibit you from eating, eating from this tree? You can't eat from every tree, I mean, come on. God's holding out on you by not letting you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge. That's not acceptable, God's not fair, God's being stingy. And then I want you to notice that both Satan and Eve subtract key points from the truth. Both, both, both the serpent and Eve leave out the word freely. Is God stingy or is he generous? Every tree but one's on the menu. I mean, he is a good, good father. So they're subtracting from God's word. In Revelation 22, 19, here's the warning. If any man shall take away from the words of, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book, in this book. Eve drops the, the word every from tree, right? Drops the every from the trees of the garden, saying only of the trees of the garden. So she's buying into this idea that God's being stingy somehow, that God's holding out. God made great provision in order to supply mankind. Uh, and that's a big deal to get that. I mean, that's a really big deal. It's a big deal to God. Do we believe that God is generous, that he is providing for us, or that somehow God is holding out on us? Because at the point where you get bitter against God, you justify any kind of wicked behavior in your own life. That's just how we're wired. Proverbs 30 verse five says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. When God provides for men, great is the provision right? When God gave you his word, what a blessing that that was. When God gave that food to Adam and Eve, it was complete provision for all of humanity. Anyone can get access to nourishment, but also there's a tree of life in that garden. You know, Eve takes it out at the beginning of your Bible. She leaves out God's generosity to freely partake. She takes it out at the beginning, but God stuffs it back in at the end of your Bible. Look at Revelation 22 again, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life, what? Freely. He is a generous God. 
You gotta understand the importance of every individual word of the Bible. Every word's there for a reason, right? God himself is speaking. There's no idle chit-chat. Eve has two passages in her Bible, but she fails to hide God's word in her heart and she lets herself get twisted up on what it actually says. So here's the key. If you don't know God's word, how are you gonna obey God's word? Did you get that? If you don't know God's word, how are you gonna obey it? So many of God's people are out just living for the flesh because they don't know any better. They don't know what the expectation of the Father is. Both Eve and the serpent add to God's word. They both add to it. Notice Genesis chapter three, um, verses two and three. We may eat, she leaves out freely, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Uh, God didn't say, I mean, if you're gonna tend the garden, if you're gonna tend and keep the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're gonna touch it, aren't you? God never prohibited touching the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The prohibition is eating its fruit, right? So let's be clear on what God said. So she's adding to the word of God. That's not in the original manuscript. They just threw that in in order to make it more acceptable. So I don't know if Adam, because he's responsible for the, 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 the second half of the Bible, right? God told Adam to, to, to tend, to keep, to guard, to keep the garden, you know, and to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did he say to Eve, God said don't touch it? Did he, did he add to the words of God? I don't know. Uh, the Pharisees, they wanted God's people to keep the law, so what they did is they put a hedge of man-made rules and regulations. They called it the hedge about the law, so that if you would just obey their man-made traditions, you could never come close to violating the actual law itself, and pretty soon they're upholding above the word of God the traditions of men. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's how it got messed up. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but she's mixed up on what the word says. People ask, well, what's the big deal if they're not exact on the word, what the word of God says? If they don't get the words right, what's the big deal? I mean, the point got across, right? The thought is preserved, right? And that's the claim of new Bible revisers and translators. It's, we're, not, we're not worried about accuracy. We just wanna get the message across in a way that people can understand it. What's the big deal about that? You know, you're told some things in your Bible need to go, other things need to be added. Uh, we, don't, we don't like the last half of the last chapter in, in Mark's gospel, and, and so we'll take that out, and we'll throw other things in, and, uh, because we wanna make sure God's message gets across. What is that? Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> That's exactly the same question that, God, that, that, that Satan is asking Eve in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Yea, hath God said. Do we, is it really important to know what God said? Did God really say what you think he said? Some things need to go, other things need to be added. We found better older manuscripts, which is just crazy logic, okay? So if for 1600 years the church had rejected those manuscripts, they didn't use them for 1600 years, but we found them in a bin in a, a Catholic monastery, and so now we gotta change the whole Bible. So God's truth was corrupted for 16 centuries, before we found it in a trash bin? I mean, I don't know, that's a big problem because God made big promises to his people. Look at Psalms 12, verse six. The words of the Lord are pure words, 
as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them. Our English grammar is really important. What is the them? Look at, look at Psalm, can, can everybody see the screen? Look at Psalms 12 verse seven. What's the them? It's the words. Now the modern Bible scholar says, no way, no how, that's not the words, it's talking about God's people. <laughs> no, it's the words. That's what the book says. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Every, from, in Psalms 12, every generation ought to be able to look and see the certainty of the words of truth in their generation. Thou shalt keep them. Now we either believe that or we don't. Psalms 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Well, until a Bible scholar gets a hold of it. Look at Revelation 22 again, verse 18. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Man, I read that and that makes me tremble. Lord, I just want to say what your word says. I don't want to take anything away from it. I don't want to add anything to it. Lord, help us to just be submitted to your book. So the issue at hand, here it is, preservation of God's word versus an evolving text because that's really, the, that's really your choice. You've either got the certainty of the words of truth or you've got the uncertainty that textual critics produce in an evolving text. One that's getting better and better all the time because we're looking and we're working and we're finding more manuscripts and we're getting more insight and we're finding ways to communicate it better. In other words, we're not relying on the preservation of God from century to century, from generation to generation throughout church history. No, we're relying on man's wisdom and scholarship and ability to produce an ever better text and we're gonna call it the word of God. Do you see the problem? We either have what God gave us or we have what man and the brightest minds of men, the best scholarship of men can produce. Lord help us. You gotta make up your mind on this. Did God preserve his word for man or do we have to divine it? Do we have to make it better? Do we have to build out a better Bible with every discovery, with every insight? Do we have to rewrite the word of God? And your mental and heart attitude toward God's word will put you in one of two major camps today. Preservation versus textual criticism. I have what God gave me or I have what the best and the brightest of us can produce. Man, I don't ever wanna be in the camp where I'm critiquing the word of God. Romans chapter three, verse four gives a great principle. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but what kind of man a liar? Every man, turn to your neighbor and tell him the Bible is calling you out. Don't call anybody a liar, we don't need a fist fight. But it's true, liar. Okay, so God is point, his point here, I hope you're following me, God's point here regarding why or how he's given us his word. Here it is, man, I keep referencing it, here it is, in the flesh, baby. Proverbs 22, verse 20, have I not written unto thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? I've got a question for you. Sam, I, what, what do you think about this problem, this situation, this theological conundrum? My answer to you is what? 
Man, it doesn't matter what I think. I have the certainty of the words of truth. It doesn't matter what I think. The Bible says, book, chapter, verse. Man, that's, that's the rock that you're standing on. That's not the shifting sands of men, men's opinions. So both Satan, the, the serpent, and Eve, they privately interpret the truth so as to remove the emphasis that God has in his word. See, the problem is she's changing the word of God. How? It's not, I mean, mean, she she basically says we don't eat lest we die. You see that? Lest ye die. That's in the place of thou shalt surely die. No, there's no question about it. It's not that you might die. No, you absolutely will die if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you don't get to twist scripture so as to make it easier to ignore. Second, second Peter chapter one verse 20 says that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. You don't get to rest the scriptures so that you can do what you want with it. It says what it says and it means what it says. So we need to take it seriously. So the serpent has an answer for this. The serpent just outright lies to the woman in verse four. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. So you need to get this down. The best lies you're ever gonna deal with, the best lies in life that you're ever gonna have to wrestle over are always couched in great truth. The best lies are always positioned in truth. Look at verse five. Look at Satan's explanation for why Eve won't die, why he's calling God a liar. For God doth know. Is that a true statement? Does God know? Everybody's like, it's a trap. No, I mean, just work with me. (laughs) Does God know? True or false? True. So is Satan speaking the truth? So far, four words into it, it's true. That in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Is that a true statement? True or false? That's absolutely true, said the liar. I mean, that's a true statement. And ye shall be as gods. God knows that your eyes will be open and ye shall be as gods. Is that a true statement? Absolutely, that's a true statement. Knowing good and evil, is that a true statement? Absolutely, that's a true statement. Eve's like, ah, we can't eat the fruit of that tree. It might kill us. Oh, Satan, now he lies. Verse four, you won't die. Verse five, here's why. Absolute truth. He supported the lie with the truth. Do you see that? God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you'll be as God's knowing good and evil. He's holding out on you. That's why he's not letting you at that tree. Here they are, setting in judgment on what God said. Man, don't ever, go, don't ever come to the place where you call God to your judgment seat, to your seat of discernment. Don't ever do that. God isn't being fair here. Not so, Lord. Peter rebuking the Lord Jesus. Not so, Lord. Oh, man, that is dangerous ground. And what we do then is when we call God to our judgment seat, then through pride we justify any action of self-will. And that's the battle. The temptation is for man to stand in the place of God as God and show himself that he is God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the invitation that Satan is giving to Eve here in Genesis chapter six. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be able to stand in the place of God as God. You'll be like the most high. You don't have to submit to him. 
Just do it. Man wants to make himself his own God. Isaiah 14 reveals this is how Satan fell. I will be like the most high. So the devil, knowing that man, also created by God, he'll fall for the same deception. In Matthew chapter four, that's how he goes after the Lord Jesus Christ. Rebel to the Father, stand in his place, follow your own will. And that's the attack today. The attack is always pride. You know how you get tripped up? It's whenever you set in judgment of what God's word says, you, you, you explain away why it doesn't apply to you, or you say to yourself, or you say in your heart, it's not fair, that's pride. Uh, you see it in school. That's what they're teaching down here at UMKC. Evolution, you know, we started out as amoebas, but look at us now. And uh, pretty soon the singularity's gonna hit, and we're all gonna be perfect. The devil says we'll be as gods. That's the lie today, right? We're becoming Superman. The singularity's gonna hit somewhere between 35 and 45, 2045 at the latest, and, and uh, we'll just, we'll, we, we will make ourselves immortal. It's man being immortal without God. Thank you very much. We will stand in the place of God and we will show ourselves we are gods. That's always the invitation. That's always the attack. So what's happening here is Satan is corrupting Eve's mind away from God's word through perverted thinking. It's perverted thinking. He's turning Eve and her thinking from God's provision, his generosity, to God's prohibition. God's being stingy and from the righteousness before God to her own rights. Do you see that? He's warping her thinking. God's not, God's not being generous, he's holding out. And being right before God is not nearly as important as my rights, not, my expectations not being met. So he plants in Eve the same desire that led to his own sin, to Lucifer's own fall the desire to be like God without God, to accomplish God's will without God's submission to the word of God. And that's the source of man's, I mean just, I'm telling you, that is the source of man's obsession with intellect and education. Uh, it's, not to, it's not to worship the God of nature and creation. No, it's to replace him. This same attack, Paul resisted it. Check out 1 Corinthians 2. Look at how Paul responds. He says, when I came to you, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's brilliant. Look at verse six. People always ask, where did the woman sin? It's right here. When she contemplated how she would fulfill her desire to disobey God's word, God's will for her life. Verse six says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Man, she's already gone, isn't she? These are all positive reasons to eat. I mean, what could be wrong? So she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband uh, with her and he did eat. It is interesting that what she thinks she follows with her life, isn't it? I mean, Proverbs 23, seven, 
says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you contemplate in life, that's what you end up in. What you excuse in the quietness of your own heart, that's typically the path that you follow. So she sees it's good for food, it's pleasant to the eyes, it's desired to make one wise. These are all positive attributes of this fruit. Why not do it? So I want us to see the three-pronged temptation. It's described for us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. All that in the world, all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So she looks at the tree and sees it's good for food. Which area of lust and temptation is that? Good for food, what would that be? Lust of the flesh. It's pleasant to the eyes, that would be the lust of the eyes, and then it's desired to to make one wise. That would be the pride of life. It's desired to make one wise. Christ himself, again, faces those same exact temptations in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. We're running out of time, so I'll just give that to you as homework. Check it out. He's tempted in a wilderness the same way that Eve is tempted in a garden and uh, where she was surrounded by plenty, he's starving. And where she failed in that temptation, Christ was victorious. How, why? Why did Jesus win where Eve failed, where Adam failed? Well, Jesus stuck to what was written and was victor. Three times Satan tries to tempt him through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And three times Jesus' response is, it is written. He stuck to the word of God. Now Eve didn't. Scroggy said, she looked as did Lot on the well-watered plain, as Esau did on the mess of pottage, as Achan did on the bar of gold, as David did on Bathsheba. The woman was the first look, the woman's was the first look of its kind and a ruinous look it has ever been. So here's the, here's the way the temptation worked. To the emotional Eve, Satan appealed to her powers of reasoning. What we'll see next time is to the reasonable Adam, he appealed to his emotional love for Eve. And again, 1 Timothy 2.14 says that Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now the blame for all of humanity is actually God places it on Adam himself and we'll see that and we'll see why next time. But what happened? Why did Eve, why was she beguiled? Why was she perverted in her thinking? Why was she deceived? The devil said, ye shall be as God. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's why God's holding out on you. He's pretending to care for her well-being when in reality he hated her and he wanted to kill her. Jesus reveals the devil for who he is in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Why does Satan lie? because he wants to kill you, that's why. He is a murderer from the beginning, that's why he does not abide in the truth. Did the devil know more than Eve? Absolutely, he knew a lot more. He was more subtle than every other being in creation. Eve doesn't know near as much as Satan, and Satan, in lying in verse four, he's casting doubt in verse one, it's an outright in verse four, tells the absolute truth in verse five, What's he doing? He's not telling all the truth, is he? Satan didn't tell Eve everything, did he? 
He didn't tell her that hell was created for fallen gods, did he? He held that part back. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Then he, Christ, will say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for fallen gods, for the devil and his angels. See, before the fruit, they couldn't go to hell when they don't know good and evil. But to whom much is given, much is required. Now they know sin, and now they're cut off from a holy God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. And Romans 22 says one day, or Romans chapter 20 says one day, death and hell will be cast into what? An everlasting lake of fire. Satan kept that part back. He's, 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 he's spitting truth, but he's not telling all of it, is he? So now the word of God is corrupted and it allows Eve to justify what she wants to do. If I don't have to trust the word of God, then I can do what I want with my life. It's my life, I'll do what I want with it. And that's what the preponderance of Bible versions ends up producing. Well, since I can't really know what the Bible says, I can compare any two of them and they disagree with one another. So how can I know what God said? If I can't really know what God said, I'll just do the best that I can with the life that, that God has given me. I'll do what's right in my own eyes and I'll just justify, and it's always, you know, whatever you want it. <laughs> That's what we justify. If I can't trust it, if I can't know the word of God, why get serious about following it? And so Eve buys the lie of pride and she rebels against God. Four, or three, point number four, three keys to give you a defense to keep you from buying and falling for a lie. Number one, know the scripture. Follow Christ's example. So when the temptations, every time, every point of temptation in your life, our response needs to be what? It is written. Book, chapter, verse. Here's what the, it doesn't matter how I feel or what I want, the word of God says, what did God say? That's what's so critical. Know the scripture. And then number two, stand your ground. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so what we need to do is we need to stand in the truth of God's word. You see the armor of God that the believer wears. What is he? He's, he, he or she is being clothed with the truth of God's word. And now when the lies come, man, the, 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 the truth protects you. The truth of God's word protects you from the devices, the flaming darts, the, 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 the lying arrows that Satan casts at God's people. And then finally, James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Brothers and sisters, you have to get this because this is absolutely how the enemy always works to try to get over on you. You get this down on the front end and then on the back end you understand why Christ deals with Satan's deception in the wilderness in Matthew 4. You, get, you understand why he did what he did and then spiritually you're a force to be reckoned with. I know what the Bible says so I'm not gonna believe the lies that are coming at me. I'm gonna resist the devil, he has to flee because God is right and the devil is a liar. I'm not, I'm, I'm not listening to him. You know, how, you know how Satan gets over on so many of God's people today is somehow, and these are, these are people that maybe they're not come to the place where you're conformed yet, you're not mature yet in Christ. And the excuse always works this way. I know what the Bible says, Pastor. Don't, I, I understand what the Bible says, but, 
And then after that but, they will say something really stinky. That's just a spiritual hack to help you just keep things straight in your mind. I know what the Bible says, but, and then here's the fart that comes out of their mouth. You don't understand what I'm going through. Here's the problem, here are the circumstances, here's the issue that I'm dealing with, and, and I hope now you understand this explains why I can't, to just, I can't actually just submit to what the Bible says, I can't actually obey what the Bible says. I have to go, pastor, don't you understand? I have to go a way that's right in my own eyes. Do you see that? And God and all God's people are just like, all I heard was I mean, that's crazy talk. What I think, what I feel, my changing circumstances, my changing emotions, the, the, the changing conditions on the ground make the adherence to, the submission to God's word acceptable or not acceptable depending on how I feel about it. Brothers and sisters, that's how little children operate. With maturity comes accountability, amen? With maturity comes submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It doesn't matter what I think, how I feel, what I saw, what I know. No, what does the Bible, what does the word of God say? I'd like us to bow our heads and humble ourselves right now. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. How many would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I've been excusing the Bible away in my life and the word of God and the spirit of God is convicting me this morning. I've been making excuses for why I don't take the book, the Bible seriously. Pastor, would you pray for me? Can I see your hand? Is there anybody like that in this service? Yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Yes, in the back, okay, in the center, I see you. Yep, in the back, okay, yep. Pastor, pray for me, I'm not, I'm explaining away the word of God from my life and I need to just surrender to it this morning. Would you pray for me, is there anyone else? Okay, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, okay, yep, okay. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I need to give my life to Christ this morning. I need to submit to the word. Yes, sir, I see you in the back. Anybody else? I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that God's my father. I I've never surrendered my life to Christ. Pastor, would you pray for me? I need to be born again. Is there anybody else? Pastor, please pray for me. Can I see your hand? Okay, yes, sir, yes, sir. Father, you see us, you see where we're at. Lord, you see the way that, that between the world, our flesh, and the devil, we buy lies. We buy into them. And uh, we explain away. Lord, those of us that are mature, in the areas of our pride or our irritation, uh, our arrogance, our lust, the things that we covet, the co- that we covet uh, we'll explain away what your word says. And we'll go away that's right in our own eyes. Uh, it, you know, if King Solomon said it, we'd all have to admit it. We're like little children. We don't know how to go out or come in. Lord, would you make us wise uh, for the two men that said, I, I need to know you. I need to surrender my life to Christ this morning. God, would you make us wise to the gospel, wise to hear and understand what the message of salvation is in your word. Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be a day of repentance and surrender. Lord, where sin before you is confessed and Christ is trusted on as redeemer, as sin bearer, as savior, as Lord. God, you're worth being right with. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. And then for believers, help us to put away childish thinking 
Help us to put away wicked and evil thinking where we explain away your word so that we can just do what we wanna do. God, help us to take your word seriously and Lord, to grow. I, Lord, I just, I, I submit myself as exhibit A. God, help me to grow in knowing you, not through how I think or feel or my changing circumstances, my mind, my will, my emotions. Lord, let your word reign over my heart and my life. Let your spirit have free course. God, you're worth being right with. And so God, like, like every day should be, God, I, I dedicate myself to you afresh, Lord. Christ is Lord, you're my Father. Your word is all that matters. Help us to see it, help us to understand that, help us to live that for your glory. Lord, we wanna, we wanna follow the example of the second Adam. The first Adam failed in rebellion. Uh, the second Adam was victor in submission to your word. Lord, help us to see that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.